Well, some of you may remember when I was preaching through the book of Malachi um, in Trinity Grace back in 2017 that I mentioned a book to you then uh, written by a man named Carl Zimmerman. That book is entitled Family and Civilization. Within that book, he shared his observations as he looked back over history and compared the disintegration of various cultures with the disintegration uh, or decline of family life within that culture. What he observed were eight specific patterns of domestic behavior that kind of typified that downward spiral of each of those of each of those cultures. And those eight patterns are these marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. The traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Feminist movements abound. An increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. An acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. A refusal of people within traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. A growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. And an increasing interest in and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crime. The book was published in 1947. And it's obvious, I think, that our culture is currently characterized by all eight of those patterns. And therefore, I, I, I think we can say disintegrating in front of our very eyes. And... The question that we as believers need to ask and answer is, how should we now live because of that? Or or in the midst of that declining culture, what do we do? And our text, of course, provides not only the rationale for the question itself, but also answers it for us. And know before we jump in, due to the sensitive material uh, of... The nature of the text this week that I've worked diligently to formulate thoughts and and prepare to present the text and apply it in ways that would be helpful as well as appropriate for all of us, including our younger years. And I think this quote from Corey Tim Boone's book, The Hiding Place, that Sarah Crawford sent me Friday morning in response to the email that I sent uh, clearly states why this uh, to be so or why I did so. Corey says this, and so seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case off the floor and set it on the floor. Will you carry it uh, off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. It's a great quote, isn't it? 
So that said, our outline is, is actually really simple when you think of three chapters to cover. There are only two points. One, the motivation for holy living and two, the manner of holy living, the motivation and manner of holy living. But before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, would you by your spirit, as we have prayed each and every week since we began, would you allow us to appreciate the riches of your story of redemption of which we have grace that you have graciously made us a part? We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages and words from Leviticus. May you help us to understand them. May we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And therefore, may we be more confident in and resting more fully in and trusting more deeply in his work for us and what he has gifted to us. And I pray these things in Christ, the one in whom we have life. Amen. So for the first 17 chapters, if you haven't been with us, uh, we've heard over and over again that God desired and continues to desire to dwell among and with his people. It was the purpose of creation. It was the purpose of redemption. His desire has been to live with us in his house. Again, to quote Mr. or Dr. Morales. And we've also heard over and over again that there was an issue. There was a grave problem that had to be overcome for that to happen. We've learned that that great problem, of course, was sin and the chasm that it created between he who is holy and us who are unholy. But fortunately, we've also heard over and over and over again that he has overcome that grave problem through a God ordained and God or uh, God appointed mediator and through God appointed means. God himself has provided a way through whom and through which life can be experienced with him. It is God that has done that for us. He has done it in such a way that that is now life with him is a both a present and a future reality. And over and over and over again, of course, we have heard that actually that way or the way is not only the way, but he is the way, the truth and the life. It is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have life. It is through Christ that we are that we have life and that we are experiencing life with the Lord. It is Christ who is our perfect mediator. It is Christ who is our perfect sacrifice. It is through Christ and his body given for us and his blood shed for us that we've been atoned of our sins and that we can dwell with him in Sabbath rest. It's through Christ and the fact that he has laid down his life for us, that we have life in him and we have life with him forever. And that atonement and that life and that rest is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel. It's the gospel upon which we stand. And as I mentioned last week, here in chapter 18, or actually in 17, things were beginning to change. But in 18, through the rest of the book, the emphasis is now different. And it's going to, it's going to point and look forward um, 
Well, it's going to not focus on how the Israelites approach the Lord. It's now going to focus on how the Israelites are to live, having approached and now being in his presence. In other words, having been redeemed, having been set free, having been delivered and and called out and having his love set upon them and them having been delivered. Now, how are they to live in light of that? What is that going to look like? And it's very clear from the beginning of chapter 18 through 19 and 20 that there has been an expectation placed upon them to live in a particular way because of what he has done for them. And it's in a way that reflects the Lord's holiness. In verse 2 of chapter 19, it says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. They are called to live in a way that reflects the holiness that and not only his holiness, but the holiness that they now possess positionally and declaratively. They've been set apart by him. And so we read in verses seven and eight of chapter 20, it says, consecrate the Lord says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for I am the Lord, your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And in. Verse 26 of chapter 20, he says, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So I've separated you now live as that separated people. And it's obvious from the language the Lord uses that the life he's calling them to is is to be set apart and different from those of their past and those of their future. He says in verse three of chapter 18, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt Where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to that which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. There's obviously a means by which they are to be distinguished. They are to be different than those that they've been around in their past They are to be different than those that they've been around in their future. They're not to live in the way that others live, but they are to live in the way the Lord has commanded them to live. Again, his love has been set upon them. He's redeemed them. He's he's made a way from that for them to dwell with him. And most importantly, they should do what he says and live the way he desires to live simply because he's God. Twenty one times. Twenty-one times he interjects either I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. In other words, I want you to do this as we read through. I want you to do this and I want you to do this because I'm God. I want you to do this. I want you to do that because I'm your God. So while his love and his mercy and his grace and his long suffering are appropriate motivators for us to live as he's called us to live. There's a very true and real sense that we should also do what he says simply because he has said so. Children, you remember I said something along those lines last week in my time with you, right? I mentioned to you that when when you ask why, when your parents say, do this or do that, and you go, but why? And they say, because I said so, that that's okay. 
And really for you, again, as we said last week, really for you, it would be getting to a place where you would go ahead and do it without asking the why question. Because you're doing it because they said so and they don't have to say that they said so. You just respond because they're in authority over you and God has placed them over you. But but the reality is, children, that's not just for you in your relationship with your parents. That's in your relationship with the Lord. And that's really for all of us in our relationship with the Lord. Whether you're a child or a teenager or a young adult or a single adult or a married adult, a parent, an empty nester, a seasoned citizen. The truth is the same for all of us, for you and for me as it was for the Israelites. As believers who have been redeemed and whose sins have been forgiven and washed clean and atoned for and separated as far as the east is from the west. We've been declared holy and we've been set apart for divine use. And so we're called to live in a holy manner. We're called to live holy lives. And Peter, of course, the Apostle Peter says the same thing. He writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The call was the same then. The call is the same now. Unfortunately for the Israelites and fortunately for us, he hasn't left us to wander or wonder about how we were to do that. He's been very clear He hasn't left us in the unknown. He who calls us to be holy and to reflect his holiness has also given us or provided us the rules and the precepts and the statutes we are to follow to do what he's commanded us to do. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make things up as we go and hope that we get it right. And he's. Clearly and consistently and graciously through both the Old Testament and the New Testament called people to himself and described what life as a child looks like and also described and and laid out what those blessings are for obedience and what those consequences are for disobedience. And while these three chapters are daunting And definitely, we had a radio station out in Colorado, a Christian radio station that used to, their their phrase almost at every commercial break or before every song was, safe for the whole family. And, And folks, the reality is that there are things that are not safe for the whole family sometimes. And so, in light of that, these, these passages in these three chapters can be boiled down to two very familiar categories. Love of God and love of neighbor. The manner that we've been called to, the manner of life that we've been called to is to love God and love our neighbor. And before we look at the, the love we are to have for God, we need to 
Uh, I need to share just one thing, and that is when when we read through these three chapters, when you have read before coming or when you read these later on as you go throughout this week and as our as you read them in our small groups, you'll notice that some of the laws are applications that are specifically directed for particular issues and social problems facing Israel at the time. And as Aaron and I were talking before, there are there are. They aren't exhaustive, but we have to remember that he's written these things because he doesn't want them to act like the Egyptians and he doesn't want them to act like the Canaanites. So it's, it's a pretty good idea that everything that's going on that he's that he is telling them to do and not to do, particularly the prohibitions are things that those folks are doing that he doesn't want the Israelites to do. So there are other things, of course, that aren't listed. But there are also laws that are not necessarily just specifically for particular situations in Israel, but they're more general applications targeted at more general issues and social problems faced by uh, more than just the Israelites at the time. So groups for all times and all places. And those laws, as you read through uh, these chapters, are intertwined. And so what we have to do is we have to, or, or, and what I've done, our attention and our focus is going to be, rather than on the specific applications of the laws, are going to be on the, the moral principles that underlie all of those laws. Because it's the moral principles that apply not only to Israel and not only to other groups, but also apply to us. And and we find them both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. They're advocated in both. And again, those moral principles can be summarized and, and placed into two groups. Love of God and loving God or loving our neighbor. So let's look at loving God first. In these chapters, the Israelites were were being called to love and worship Yahweh alone. We've said this many times. Yahweh, the Lord, is magnificent. He alone was magnificent. He alone is majestic. He alone is pure, righteous, and good, and altogether other. He is holy. He was the one true God that had created them and chosen them and set them apart and redeemed them and atoned for them. And because he desired to be in their midst and to meet with them, they, they were to maintain, and you will read through these chapters, he, they were to maintain the, the sanctuary, the reverence for the sanctuary. They were to remember the Sabbath that he had established for them. And they were to properly follow the sacrificial guidelines and all of the clean and the unclean laws that we have gone over in the last few weeks. But they were also forbidden to do a few things. They were forbidden to worship other gods. They were to not make idols out of out of metal or wood. They were also not to turn to fertility gods or to harvest gods. They weren't to turn to magic or divination or to turn to witchcraft or pay attention to fortune tellers or omens. They weren't to follow pagan mourning rituals and they weren't to disfigure themselves or take on cultic marks on their bodies. They weren't to call on or to make attempt to reach out to the dead. And they weren't to make sacrifices to other gods, particularly 
children or child sacrifices. Laying their sacrifice, laying their child as sacrifices on the altar to to false gods. And all, all of these things, all of these things were going on in their past and in their present and future. All these things the pagans were doing. And the Lord says, I do not want you to do that. Because in each case, no matter what it was, if they were to do these things, they would be communicating their lack of love and reverence and trust for the Lord. For trust in the Lord. It didn't matter which. Pick whatever you would like. If they did any of those things that he told them not to do, they would communicate their lack of trust. They did not believe that his will would be done. They did not believe that he wanted to or could or would provide or protect or bless them. Everything that was prohibited would would have been a means by which they would ascribe trust and loyalty and honor and worth and love to someone or something other than the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we too are called to love the Lord in that way. He is to be our first love. We are to love our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. We are to worship other gods. We are not to make idols. We're not to make idols out of money and power and prestige and position and status or anything else that from which we might derive our satisfaction in our identity. We're called to to not look to or to pay attention to psychics and tarot card readers. And and I would I would even lump in health and wealth, name it, claim it, prosperity, gospel preachers. We aren't to incorporate cultic rituals or unbiblical practices like Taize and contemplative prayer into our lives and worship. All of these things are going on in the the culture around us. They're taking place every day. And we're not to participate because they all are a means by which we would be communicating that we don't love and trust and honor the Lord. They're all means by which if we were to, to jump in and to participate, we would be saying that we don't believe that the Lord's will would be done. We would believe that he doesn't want to or can or would ever provide for us or protect us and do what it is that he has promised to do. There is but one true God. There's one true God and he alone remains magnificent and majestic and altogether other. He he remains holy. And and we're to remember the Sabbath, for it has been created for us. We're not to neglect the gathering together because it's here. We've mentioned this over the last couple of weeks. It's here as we meet together that, that He is glorified and we are sanctified. It's here that we are edified and, and that we grow up as a body in, into Christ. And we're to remember and proclaim. Remember and proclaim that through Christ alone that we come and enter into His presence. 
And we come and we worship in the means that he has prescribed. Because it's through the simple means of grace that he has chosen to bless and sanctify his people. It's here where discipleship takes place. And we're to remain, of course, we're to remain firmly established in the grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone gospel. That is, in so doing, we express our love to the Lord. Well, in these chapters, the Israelites are also called to love their neighbor. The phrase is even used. And the laws that were, were given, they were to govern that the love for neighbor covered relationships at home. They covered relationships between or outside the home. So inside the home, outside the home, between friends, between strangers, between residents, between residents and sojourners, and even across ethnic and socioeconomic lines. They were for everybody. And that love was to be expressed through revering and honoring and respecting parents. And revering and honoring those with gray hair, those of older generations who who have wisdom. It was to be shown through sharing with others in need. It was to be expressed by not oppressing others. And taking advantage of others or stealing from them in any, any way. It was, it, it was expressed by not taking advantage by the underprivileged and, and by those who, who were dealing with disabilities or handicaps. It was expressed by being honest and being fair in business dealings. They were to love their neighbor by not showing partiality or favoritism to the rich or to the poor. They were to be considerate of others. They were to seek justice as the law demanded. And they were to practice forgiveness and reconciliation and not, and not be vindictive. The most time and attention and detail in regard to loving their neighbor was given to the importance of keeping Sexual intimacy in the confines of a marital relationship between one man and one woman. We tend to make it more difficult than it really is. But that's the bottom line. And we we don't want to think about it but the truth of the matter is as I've already said that all of those specific details in chapters 18 and 20 specifically all of those things were going on in Egypt and Canaan they weren't figments of anybody's imagination and the Lord told Israel that it should not be the same with you. And honestly, it was difficult for them to refrain from. 
due to their own sin and due to the pressure of all that was going on around them. But they were to refrain. Because to participate in some of those things was defined as detestable. Some of those things were defined as as acts of depravity. Some of them were described as acts of abomination. But all of them were unclean. All of them were to be avoided. And ultimately, because I I want us to think about what happens, regardless of what it is. A sexual relationship or behavior outside of marriage between one man and one woman exhibits a lack of respect for others and themselves, or we should say ourselves. Those kinds of behaviors lead to the destruction of the family. These behaviors lead to the undermining of society. These behaviors were and are a means of completely disrespecting the institution of marriage that God has created. And brothers and sisters, those relationships and those behaviors completely desecrate The sign and seal of marriage that symbolizes the divine bond. And the bringing back together of what God had separated at creation. What he had separated at creation, he brought back together in one flesh. And the sexual relationship is a sign and seal of of marriage and a symbol of that taking place in anything outside Completely desecrates that. And it's no wonder. So it's no wonder that the penalty was severe. It's no wonder that those who disobeyed would be cut off from the people. Or they would be vomited out from the land. And ultimately that it would lead to death. And and by the way, this is exactly what was about to happen to the Canaanites, right? The Lord was going to use Israel... To judge Cain. And the Lord in his grace. Looks at Israel and says listen. You are about to do this for me. Because of the abominations and the things that they're doing. But listen. Listen. Before it all begins. The same thing could happen to you. If you walk that same road. Well do I need to say that we are to love our neighbors in the same way. We're called to love our neighbors in the same way. I, I probably don't need to say it, but it's pretty clear. The go, it's, it's all throughout the Gospels. And, and if you go back, and, and really we've been learning this through our study of Leviticus. But you go and, and you read through the New Testament, having read through Leviticus. And all of a sudden other things begun, begin to, to you know, lights, light bulbs begin to go off. Because we understand the language that's being spoken of. And, and, and the, the examples that are being used. And so we read 1 Thessalonians and James and 1 Peter. And they all contain the same moral principles. And in many respects are repeating what we've been reading through in these last three chapters. They're just written through the lens of the gospel. We're to revere and honor and respect our parents and those with gray hair. Wiser generations. 
We're to share with those in need. We're not to oppress or steal from others. We're not to take what's not ours. We aren't to take advantage of the underprivileged and, and the handicapped. We're to be honest. We're to be fair in all of our business dealings. We're to be considerate. We're not to show partiality or favoritism to the rich or the poor. We're to seek justice according to the law. We're to practice forgiveness. We're to seek reconciliation where we can. We're to seek peace with all men. We're not to be vindictive. And, and despite what our culture is saying right now, and despite the direction that we're going, we're not to be involved in sexual relationships or behavior outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. But we can't end there. We can't end there because even when we read and we preach the law as its third use intends for it to be used. Right? We, we hear it preached because in this way because it reveals the holiness of God and what's pleasing to Him and it shows how we might glorify Him. How we are to live because we are his, but it simultaneously, as we do that, fulfills its first use as well. Augustine once said, the law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. In other words, we hear this command to be holy. As his people. And rightfully so. We are to live as we've been called to live. Because of who we are. And because we have been set apart. And we are to glorify the Lord by fulfilling these commands. But at the same time. We feel our weakness. We feel our weakness and are reminded of our sinfulness. And we're reminded that we fall short of that holiness that we're called to. And so, in light of that, let me close with this. For those of you who are on the treadmill of trying to be holy in an effort to justify yourself and earn or, your, or merit your position or standing before the Lord. Look to Christ. For those who have failed and fallen and are rattled with shame and guilt, look to Christ. For those who are mired in habitual self Serving, self-satisfying behavior or lifestyles that express a love for yourself rather than a love for God and neighbor. Look to Jesus. For those who are wrestling with the same sin that you just can't seem to put to death. Look to Jesus. For those who are completely immersed in the sin of the culture around them and can't seem to find a way of escape. Look to the Lord Jesus. For those who 
desire to live in a manner worthy of the calling as saints and who have been set apart for divine use, you too look to Jesus. And for those who have been scarred by the selfish and inexcusable sin that others have perpetrated against you, look to Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Trust in Him. Whether you need forgiveness, cleansing, hope, healing, restoration, reconciliation, peace, rest, or any or all of the above. Come to Jesus. His grace is sufficient and is available at this very moment. Let's pray together. Father, would you now, by your spirit, use the word that has been preached to transform us by the renewing of our minds.